Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You can find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I appreciate the birthday greetings. 
I guess the advantage of the years going by is that you gain perspective. And I have the perspective now of a man who has lived for a while. I don't know how at this point I could deny the God who has fed and clothed me all the days of my life. He has been nothing but faithful to me. I certainly ought to be faithful to him. First Thessalonians, turn there. As I told you last week, this is a very congenial letter. It's a very encouraging letter. This is arguably one of Paul's first, if not the first, letter to a church that we still have. That's important because he's going to say a lot of really important stuff in the midst of writing to the church at Thessalonica. The church at Thessalonica is under a great deal of persecution. We saw that in the introduction to the book when we read through the book of Acts, how Paul would get to cities. He'd only be there for a few weeks before the persecution would begin and he would be driven out. The same thing happened once Paul left the saints there in the cities like Berea and Thessalonica were then persecuted both by the Jews who would persecute the Jews who had embraced Christ and then also from the Romans who don't want this preaching of another real king who is not Caesar. And so there was a lot of religious and political investment in stopping the preaching of Christianity. And even though we today might feel a little bit of that in this cancel culture, even though we may have somebody on Facebook who unfriends us for it, we don't know what real persecution is. The persecution in the first century was intense, so intense, in fact, that by the time we get to the second letter, Paul has to explain to them that they are not yet in the day of the Lord. That's how severe the persecution became. And yet in the midst of that persecution, they grew. They were faithful, so much so that Paul in this first chapter of this first book of his first writing compliments them for their faithfulness in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their difficulty. Now that tells us a lot theologically. Because there are people out there who will tell you that if you come to Christ, everything gets better. And that life is going to go better for you. You can't draw that conclusion from anywhere in the Bible. You certainly can't draw it from the New Testament or the New Testament churches. The New Testament churches struggled and suffered for what they held and for what they believed and for what they promoted. It's really a remarkable thing about Christianity, if you look at the history of Christianity, that the more Christians are persecuted, the more Christianity grows. It's pretty astounding. The growth of Christianity has been fertilized with the blood of the saints. And yet here we are, 
2,000 years later, still talking about Christ and still reading the Bible and still promoting Christianity. Persecution has a tendency to weed out the people who are sincere and genuine about what they believe from the people who are just professing Christianity for what they can get out of it. If you're going to church or professing Christ just for what you get out of it, eventually that's going to get tiring, it's going to get old to you, and you're going to leave. But if it is Christ who has saved you, if it is Christ who has drawn you, if it is God who has chosen you before the foundation of the world, then where else are you going to go? You're going to remain, and so Paul is going to compliment them for their constancy of faith and the way they have stuck to it through their suffering and through their persecution. This first chapter, Paul is so busy complimenting them that it would be easy to read it very quickly and just conclude that it's just Paul's greeting. But there are so many theological underpinnings to what Paul is writing that it's necessary to understand the perspective that Paul is writing from and the theology that lays behind the things that he has to say. And interestingly, in the midst of complimenting them for their faithfulness to Christ and how their faith is known throughout the whole region of Macedonia and Achaia, in the midst of complimenting them, he also introduces a very eschatological concept, the day of the Lord. Proving then that Paul, when he was out preaching Christ and preaching the gospel, included the eschatological elements of the Bible, which is why I continue to contend, if you don't mind that alliteration, I continue to contend on the continuing contention (laughs) that to preach the Bible truly, to preach the gospel truly, it's not just the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which is how we were redeemed from our sinfulness and is, of course, core to the gospel, but just as essential to the story of Christ is the reality that he's coming back. And you can't extricate that from the whole rest of the gospel or else you come out with a truncated gospel. And all the evidence in these two letters that Paul writes to the Thessalonians demonstrate that Paul not only taught the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but had a lot to say to this early church about the return of Christ and the circumstances that surround the return of Christ. So let's read chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, and then we'll go back and start picking it apart. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, you should know them by now. Paul and Silas and Timothy, we've been talking about them for two weeks. We looked at the history of how the three of them got together. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, 
constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and a true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So right there in verse 10, Paul got very eschatological, looking forward to the return of Christ from heaven, the very one that God raised from the dead. And when Christ died, he not only delivered us from our sin, but delivered us from the wrath to come. Very day of the Lord language. So even though Paul is spending what we would call this first chapter, he's spending this ink on complimenting them for their faithfulness. I want to dig behind what he has said and see if we can't find some basic Christian principles because basic Christian principles are buried in this text. Paul's assumption is that their faith, what they profess, what they believe is going to be manifested through their behavior. And you can see him here complimenting their behavior, and he's doing that because it is expected that Christian people who have been converted by Christ, people who have been called by God, won't be the way they used to be. Their behavior will also be involved in their Christian profession. Now, again, I find this really, really fascinating because here's Paul who was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He once said that before the law, he was blameless. This is Paul who studied at the feet of Gamaliel. This is Paul who lived by the standards of the law. So much so, he was willing to go out and kill Christians because he was so dedicated to Moses and the Old Testament and the law. And the law is behaviorally based. The law is all about do and don't do stuff. And notice that Paul, in embracing Christianity, doesn't say now that you belong to Christ, your behavior doesn't matter. This is Paul who, as we were going through the book of Galatians, it's very obvious that he's the one who said we're free from the law. 
oh happy condition. He's the one who said the law is not binding on our hearts or conscience. But that freedom that we have in Christ is not then freedom to just live any way we want and be any way we want. Instead, there is also an expectation of proper behavior within Christianity. So Paul went from behavior to try to satisfy the dictates of the law to behavior based on love of Christ. There's still behavior involved. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father. Paul right away makes a theological statement. Why does the church exist? Why does any church exist? Why does the ecclesia of Christ exist? Well, we know it's because Christ is in the enterprise of building his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So then why is Christ building his church? Is it for your benefit so that you can get out of it everything you think you deserve? No, he's building his church for his own glory so that his people will worship him. Now, you may gain benefit from that, and I certainly hope you do. Knowing that your sins are completely forgiven and you're going to live forever in the place of constancy and joy with God. Okay, that's a big benefit. And being among the saints of God and being... Encouraged by the saints of God, being among like-minded people in this crazy world, that's a big benefit. But that's not the primary reason why the church exists. The church exists, according to Paul, because of God the Father. It was his idea. It was his notion to start the church. You just are the very fortunate, gracious recipient of God drawing you into the church. Never take that for granted. I was driving here this morning because I can no longer walk here this morning. I was driving here this morning and I, and I saw people who were clearly going to like the lake this morning, pulling their boat, going to the lake. I saw people who were going out to breakfast this morning. I saw... And so not everybody on a Sunday morning was going to church. I was. I was driving to church this morning. And I had to think how fortunate I was that God determined that I, on a Sunday, would come and worship him rather than leaving me to my own devices. Because there's plenty of other stuff I'd rather be doing after my own flesh. There's lots of sinning left to do. Even in this old tired body, there's a whole lot of stuff I could be doing. And God decided that he was going to direct my steps to be here with fellow Christians, like-minded people, so that we collectively could sing to God, could pray to God, could look into his word together. You are so remarkably fortunate that the grace of God would call you into the church that belongs to him. How can you ever take that for granted? To the church at Thessalonica, which is in God the Father, and also in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we said last week, Paul always gets these two terms in the right order, grace to you and peace. 
Because you're never going to have peace with God if he is not gracious to you first. And then last week we looked at this second phrase, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. And then we went and looked at 2 Thessalonians 2.13 where Paul said, we are thankful to God for you, brethren beloved, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. That theology of election leading to salvation is so ingrained in Paul's theology that he cannot help but say, I thank God for you. I don't thank you that you showed up here. I thank God that he caused you to show up here. I thank God that he would save you, that he would redeem you, that he would write your name down in the Lamb's book of life. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind three things, three very important things, three things that are fundamental to what it is to be a Christian. The first of them is your work of faith. There's a tremendous amount of controversy in the modern church about works versus faith. And in the early church, as we saw in the book of Galatians, after Paul was done teaching in Galatia, immediately... Judaizers came in behind him and said, okay, faith, you've got faith, but that's not enough. You also need to add some works. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep some elements of the law. So this debate about how works and law fit together permeates the church and is still alive today. There are a great many people who will argue, yes, you have to have faith in Jesus, but you also have to do the good works in order to get Jesus to either keep you or to save you or that your works are part of the whole salvation equation. Okay, well, they've got faith and works backwards. Biblically, salvation leads to good works. That's certainly the Pauline example that having faith in Jesus Christ doesn't eliminate your works, but if you're doing your works in order to get saved, you've got the proverbial cart before the horse. Instead, having faith in Jesus Christ then leads to the good works that he has ordained that you're going to walk in. So the first thing that Paul comments on for them in extolling their faith is he says, We're constantly bearing in mind your work of faith. Because faith works. Because Christian people who have faith in Jesus Christ then attempt to be like Christ in being kind and long-suffering and gracious and sacrificial. Those qualities that Christ has, he then shares with his church. So Paul sees that in them and starts using it as an example of the fact that they've been called by God. He can see in them their good works of faith, and it is evidence to him that God is in this thing. The second thing he mentions is your labor of love. 
So there is actual labor involved. There is sacrifice involved. There is effort involved in Christianity. Looking out for each other, caring for each other, taking care of each other, that's work. That's labor. Some people require more labor than other people. You know what I'm saying? The labor is not driven by your self-aggrandizement and, hey, look at me, I'm doing good stuff. The labor is all about the fact that you love Christ. He first loved you, therefore you love him. And as a demonstration of how you love him, you love his people. Even if some of his people are wildly unlovable, you still sacrificially love them. So Paul has said, I'm constantly keeping in mind your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope. Every time we see that English word hope in the Bible, I have to take the time to say El Peace. It means a confident looking forward to what you know is coming. That is our blessed hope. We know that this is not the whole story. We know that there are greater days ahead for us. We know that despite the difficulties of this life, despite the suffering persecutions of this life, the pains of this life and these fleshly mortal bodies, despite that, we know that this isn't the end of the story, that there is this hope laid out in front of us, the hope of heaven, the hope of the return of Christ, the hope of a new body. We have all these things that we're looking forward to, and because God has said it and he cannot lie, we then look forward to it, anticipating it, confident that it's going to come. Therefore, we remain hopeful. And that remaining hopeful is a vital element of what Christianity is. It's the difference between the world that is so downtrodden and the world that is so bitter and the world that is so angry with each other the world that separates over every difference, the difference between the world and the Christians are that we live in the same circumstances and instead of becoming depressed by it, we are hopeful through it, looking forward to the deliverance that we know is coming. Now Paul looks at those three things and is able to say, this is all evidence that God chose you. He doesn't say this is evidence that you made a good choice. Okay, this is all evidence that we told you a really good convincing story, and so you of your own free will decided to follow along with it. No, what he says is this is all evidence that God chose you and put you in his church. Otherwise, you wouldn't be like this. Because Paul knows what they were originally like. Remember in the introduction we talked about Thessalonica. We talked about how many idols, how many temples. The amount of false worship that permeated this Greek city. And yet Paul could see in them a change. A change of heart. A change of behavior. He even mentions that you left. You turned away from your idols so that you would serve the true and the living God. 
These are all evidences that something has changed within you. And how did that get changed? Paul keeps saying, God. It's God that did it. Otherwise, you wouldn't have changed. I say all the time, I see people do dumb stuff. And when people complain about it to me, I say, hey, that's people. Right, James? You've heard me say that my whole life. Well, that's people. And people don't change. People don't change. And then you see somebody that you know well, and you know what they're like, and they've changed. What is that evidence of? Is that evidence that they wised up? Is that evidence that they figured out some stuff? Or is it evidence that something beyond them that they don't even fully comprehend has gripped them, has changed them, is in the process of redeeming them, regenerating them from within, making a new man out of them? Well, that's what Paul is saying. I've witnessed among you these qualities that can only be a demonstration of God's grace to you. They can't possibly be a demonstration of something within you. Here, I'll let Paul say it. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, and labor of love, and the steadfastness, the enduring quality of your hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God the Father. If you have hope in Jesus Christ today, anybody here got hope in Jesus Christ? If you've got, how come there were only like four hands that went? If you have hope in Jesus Christ right now, Paul says it is because of the presence of God the Father. If there were no God, you would have no hope in Jesus Christ. It's axiomatic. Only through God would you have hope in the finished work of Christ and the glory to come. And you are steadfast in the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God the Father. Uh, here, I'll check with a few folks. I'm looking forward to and loving the appearance of Christ. Anybody else? Yes. Yeah. Okay, where'd you get that? Where'd you get that hope? Exactly, from God. From the very fact that God is present. God is present in your life. God is present in his creation. God is present in his church. He is doing exactly what only he can do. And he is changing and conforming you and causing you to hope in the finished work of Jesus Christ and the someday return so that you know this world is not your home and so that you know that the events of this life are just a mere passing vapor and that you have an eternity in God's presence to look forward to. Where'd you get that hope? Where did you come up with that? Well, you came up with it because God's present. It is a proof. It is an evidence of God existing. I know some of you. I've watched some of you change. I've known some of you a long time. And I've watched God work in your life. I've watched what God has done in your life. And I know for certain it wasn't you, because I know you. 
So that is evidence to me of the existence of God and of the grace of God and of the power of God, the authority of God, the work of God in his creation is demonstrated in the reality of Christianity. But then Paul doesn't stop there. He's got a real run-on sentence going here. He keeps going. I'm constantly keeping in mind your work of faith and your labor of love and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, that is definitional to who the brethren are. The brethren are the ones who are beloved by God demonstrated by the fact that they have changed and that they do have these qualities, these qualities that only Christian people can have. And all of that combined proves God's choice of you. There, he just got all Calvinistic on you. He just got all election of grace on you. Paul was very sovereign gracie. He says, having seen the things I've seen having taken account of what you're like and how you behave, how you are walking out your Christianity, how you are hoping in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, and how even in your suffering and difficulties, you continue to cling steadfastly to that hope. That is proof of the presence of God in your life, causing me to know, you beloved brethren, that you are beloved by God and he chose you from the beginning for salvation. So Paul is not afraid of election theology. He is not afraid of the doctrine of election, but the right place for it is right where he puts it, which is, I see the evidence that God has chosen you and that evidence is the way you have changed. For, now he's going to demonstrate some of the examples, some of the proof positive that God has elected you. Have you ever thought to yourself, I wonder if I'm truly genuinely chosen by God? I'm truly elect. Have you ever wondered that? Well, Paul now is going to give you evidence of God's election in your life. Knowing, brethren beloved by God, his choice of you for or because our gospel did not come to you in word only. If the only thing you get out of church, if the only thing you get out of preaching is intellectual stimulation, then all you've heard is the words. All you've done is heard the stuff, but it has not yet affected you. It hasn't changed you yet. Our power did not just come to you in word only. But it also came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Okay, again, he went with three things. It came to you with dunamis, the power of God, demonstrated by the fact that you've changed. Demonstrated by the fact that you're not who you used to be. You don't act like you used to act. And because, as we've already concluded, you can't be the causal agent of your change. I mean, come on, you are your problem. You can't be your solution. And so if you change in positive ways, 
then it is God who is changing you, and therefore it is the power of God inside you being demonstrated. Paul saw that kind of change among those at Thessalonica, and therefore he could conclude God has chosen you because the power of God is demonstrated through you. And God does not make mistakes. He would not be wasting some of his power on somebody who's too stubborn to change. He's going to overwhelm you. He's going to overpower you. He is, after all, the Almighty. And he, by his power, is going to cause you to come to faith in Jesus Christ. So it's not just about hearing the words of the Bible. It's not just hearing the euangelion that Paul preached. It's not just word only, but it is the power behind the word. The God who sent his word is going to make sure that his word accomplishes the very thing he sent it to accomplish. Therefore, that is a demonstration of his power among you. And then also, not only did you hear the word, and not only did it demonstrate itself in power, but you also received the Holy Spirit and therefore have full conviction. You are fully convinced. Again, I'm going to repeat myself. I've said this for so many years, but uh, I've been here for so many years, and so I'm going to repeat myself. If you are converted to Christianity through somebody making a really convincing speech to you, if you hear a very persuasive sermon that sounds good and that appeals to you, so then it is up to you to decide that you're going to come to Christ based on the inspirational words that you heard somebody speak. I contend that if somebody can talk you into it, somebody else can talk you out of it. I mean, if you came to Christ, so-called, because you heard really convincing stuff, well, then what happens when you hear really convincing stuff about Darwinism? You're going to be persuaded again. People talking people into Christianity doesn't work. God has to, by his Holy Spirit, change you from within and cause you then to have what Paul is calling this full conviction. And that kind of conviction isn't swayed by the stupidity of this world. That kind of conviction holds on to Christ no matter what. Even if you have to suffer. Full conviction says, I don't care what this world does to me. No matter what happens, our full conviction doesn't change, doesn't waver. Because our God doesn't change and doesn't waver. There is no variableness with him. There's no shadow of turning with him. So if he doesn't change and he is the source of your faith and conviction, would your faith and conviction change? If it did, that meant God changed. And so Paul could see in them that they have that quality of hope and full conviction. And he concludes, that's proof God chose you. Remarkable theology. Because that's the only way anybody becomes a Christian. Remember, again, we're talking about Paul, who's being persecuted city to city, 
five times beaten with 39 lashes, shipwreck a day and a night in the deep, fasting often, hungry often. Everywhere he goes, he's being driven out of those towns by opposition, fierce opposition, stoned and left for dead outside of Lystra. And then he has the conviction to say to people, come be like me. Come join me. Come be a Christian. If you're looking at Paul's life, you're going, uh, that looks difficult. <laughs> looks painful. Why, why would I want to do that? And here's Paul out here saying, come and join us. And in fact, he even says, you became imitators of us. What? So it's no wonder then that they suffered persecution. Paul suffered persecution. Jesus suffered persecution in this world. Because they hate Jesus, they also hate those that belong to Jesus. And yet Paul compliments the fact that they have become Christians despite their suffering, despite their difficulty. They are fully convicted of Christianity even though it's a death sentence to them. They become fully convinced of it and Paul again can say, that's not you. That's God because nobody after their flesh would go, oh yeah, Christianity, that's for me. Yeah, suffering, persecution, that's for me. No, only if God chose them would they be willing to align themselves with Paul and the suffering that he underwent. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in dunamis, in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know, what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Okay, so what kind of men did Paul and Silas and Timothy prove to be while they were there in Thessalonica? Turn over one chapter. We'll just jump forward for just a moment. Uh, chapter 2, we'll start reading at verse 9 because Paul is going to continue to kind of elaborate on this idea that, yes, you should follow after us as we follow after Christ. After all, our behavior has been in line with our Christian profession. Verse 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor. A minute ago, he talked about their labor of love. You remember our labor, and you also recall our hardship, because it was difficult. How Working, laboring day and night so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the good news, the euangelion, the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. Just as you know, how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would implore his own children so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Very consistent theology. Walk consistently now that you have the knowledge that God called you He made a choice of you, 
And he called you into a kingdom that belongs to him, into a glory that belongs to him. And yet he invited you into that kingdom, into that glory. Paul says, if that's the case for you, be different. Don't act like the world. Expect an internal change. And so Paul says, when we were with you, you're witnesses of this. And by the way, so is God. God saw it. God will testify for us that we walked among you devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly. And that's how we behaved towards you believers. So back to chapter 1. Paul could say, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you, For your sake. Really interesting again. Here's Paul who says, I'm free from the law, and I'm free from all men. I'm free from everybody's judgment. Even goes so far as to say, I judge not my own self. Completely free in Jesus Christ. And yet, this is the same Paul who says, Among the Gentiles, I was like a Gentile. Among those without law, I was like one without law. Not being completely without law, but being under the law of Christ. And he says, when I was among the Jews, those who were under the law, I was like one who was under the law. I have become all things to all men so that I may gain the more for Christ. And so Paul could say, our behavior among you was exemplary, and we did that on purpose for your sake so that you could see the Christian example, so that we could demonstrate to you what it is to walk like people who are not of this world, but who have been called out of this world by Jesus Christ. For that reason, we really suffered. He says we worked with our own hands so that we wouldn't be any kind of a burden to you. You recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how we were working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, and yet we proclaimed the gospel of God to you. He's saying it was tough, and yet we were exemplary in our behavior for your sake, so that you could see what it is to walk after Christ. That, by the way, is sacrifice for the benefit of the one being loved. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So, verse 6, you also become imitators of us. Having seen our behavior, seeing our faith, seeing our constancy, then you become imitators of us and imitators of the Lord. Having received the word in much tribulation... And yet with joy in the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this world is oftentimes no fun. Am I telling anybody something you don't know? Oftentimes this world is just difficult. And as the years pile up, it becomes more difficult. Okay, so where are you going to find your joy? You're not going to find it in this world. You're not going to find it in your physical body. You're not going to find it in your flesh, even though your flesh will lie to you because your flesh wants things to be easy. Avoid pain, gain pleasure. That's the basic principle of fleshly life. But as a Christian, you're likely to accumulate pain. So then 
Where are you going to find comfort and hope? Where are you going to find your joy? Notice also the difference. Paul did not say, where are you going to find your happiness? Because happiness is based on happenstance and the things that happen. Sometimes things happen that make you happy. Sometimes things happen that make you sad. But the joy of the Lord is constant through the good times and the bad times. That's why Paul would say things like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's within the context of, I know how to be abased, I know how to abound. I know how to suffer lack. I know how to go hungry. And I have found in all these things how to be content. And it's the joy of the Lord. I have learned that through Christ, I can do everything. That's the perspective that Paul has gained through the things that he has suffered. In the midst of that, if you have the Holy Spirit, then you have hope. And because you have that hope of a better day ahead, you still have joy in the midst of what Paul calls much tribulation, much difficulty. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. If you look at your map again, Achaia is just below Macedonia there, another Grecian region in that area. And Paul says, your Christian life, your Christian behavior, your Christian faith is become a demonstration to everyone around you of the reality of Christianity, the reality of God changing people, and the reality of the hope and the joy that is a result of Jesus Christ. For the word of God has sounded forth from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. Paul's saying, as I travel around this area... I don't need to point at you and say, you know, the Thessalonians are doing really well. They know about it before I even get a chance to say it. They know about your faith. They know about your consistency. They know about your hope. They know about your love. And they know about the good works that flow from that love. And so I don't even need to say anything. For they themselves report about us the kind of reception that we had with you, that you did embrace the gospel, that you did not just hear it as words, but that the power of God was demonstrated through you. And that's the kind of reception we had with you. And that reception and that change is demonstrated by the second half of this sentence, how you turned to God, the real God, the living God, You turned from your idols to serve a living God. Big difference. Dead idols, living God. And not only living, but the true God, because the idols are false gods. And you turned from your falsehood and worshiping the things that you constructed with your own hands, and you turned from that to the true and the living God. And that is the kind of reception that we had with you. You were so convinced, so fully convicted by my gospel 
that you changed your life so dramatically that you were willing to turn away from what you had held and believed for your whole life because you heard the truth and you embraced it. Let's test that theory. Has anybody in this room ever believed something that just plain flat wasn't true? Okay, once again, that should be all your hands. Yeah. Okay, and then through God, through his word, through the course of him changing and converting you through your life, you came to know the truth. And you embraced the truth, and you forgot about those falsehoods that you'd been taught. That is so prevalent in the modern church. One of the biggest difficulties about coming to the truth of the Bible, the truth of the gospel, one of the biggest difficulties of it is unlearning all the junk the church has taught you. That's right. And so they religiously were worshiping false things, as we all have in our lives. But then through the power of God demonstrated in us, They were converted to the point where they turned to God and turned away from their idols to serve the living and the true God. That is also true of all of us. And to wait for his son. Okay, uh, homeschool kids, I'm going to teach you a new word. I expect you to use it in a sentence later today. Uh, Hapax legomena. Do you know that word? It's actually two Greek words. Literally, it means something said only once. When you read verse 10 and it says, and we wait for his son from heaven, that word wait is one of Paul's great compound words. It's anamano, and it's a combination of ana, which is what's called an emphatic And the word mano means to stay. It means emphatically to stay, to stay grounded, to stay in the hope, to stay in the looking forward and being ready for the return of Christ. And that eagerness, that anticipation, that confidence, that hope of waiting, standing, not being moved, anticipating the Son of God coming from heaven is yet again the evidence that God has changed you. And so Paul uses this very unique hapax legomena. He uses that word wait, not being moved, standing firm, waiting for the sun to come from heaven. And which sun are we looking for? Who are we looking for? The very one that God himself raised from the dead. So he combined the return of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in one great hope. Now, did Jesus resurrect from the dead? Yes. Yeah, all of the evidence is that he did. Okay, so that's a truth of history. Paul combined that with the truth of the future. And as real and true and genuine as the resurrection is... That's how true and trustworthy the return of Christ is. And you can look forward to the return of the Son of God from heaven because God already did the raising from the dead part. And because God powerfully chose you, drew you, changed you, gave you faith, gave you hope 
already raised his son, you are guaranteed, rock-solid guarantee, he's coming back for you. It's all part and parcel of the good news that Paul promoted there in Thessalonica and that they embraced and that they then went out and taught. The very one who he raised from the dead and then, just so there's no confusion, he says, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, he's going to return to that theme, that concept, later in 2 Thessalonians. He's got a lot of eschatological things to say yet. But part of the guarantee when God chooses you is that he is guaranteeing your deliverance from his wrath. He is going to pour out his wrath on the whole unbelieving world. And if he has chosen you from the beginning for salvation, not only did he redeem you from your sin, but he guaranteed that you're going to be safe in his presence, safe in his power, safe in his everlasting love when it's time for him to pour out his wrath on the whole rest of the world. And that is just crazy good news. Because the wrath of God is coming. And Paul doesn't deny the wrath of God is coming. It permeates the Old Testament. Day of the Lord language is replete in the scriptures. And you won't be a part of that if God has actually chosen you, changed you, redeemed you. And the evidence that he has done all that for you is how you walk, how you behave, knowing that he's done all that for you. So that's the first chapter of First Thessalonians. More. Oh, there's more. <laughs> We appreciate you listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.